you know this story. So most of you, which means that most of us are bringing prior knowledge, expectations, understanding, other sermons to the text this morning. And when we come to the Word of God, we need to train ourselves. This is how I do my preparation to say, what was Luke's intention for writing this story? Who was the original audience? He's writing to people who have not yet come to the full understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. But most of us in this room have received Christ as our Lord and Savior, many of you, for decades now. And so you come to a familiar text, and it's human nature to say, what does this have to do with me? And next thing you know, you're imparting onto the text your own expectations, your own understandings. And you're liable to miss the main point of the text. We talked about this last week when Jesus calmed the storm. We said, how many times have we heard a sermon about Jesus calming the storm or Sunday school, favorite Sunday school story? This one we don't usually teach to the four, five, and six-year-olds. Demons being cast out of a crazy man running around naked in the, in the tombs. Um, but Jesus calming the storm, we, you know, we love that story. And the application is Jesus will calm the storms of your life. First of all, many kids that age don't even understand the metaphor of a storm of life. Which is a beautiful thing, and it's why I love teaching children, why I've always been drawn to children's ministry, because the kids get it, actually. Wow, this guy can make the storm stop. I don't know anyone like that. They get it. Then they get older, and we turn it into figurative language, and we say, well, you know, you're going to have metaphorical storms of life, and... Jesus is there for you to calm the storms raging in your heart. And boy, that'll preach. And instead of Jesus becoming our almighty God and Savior, he becomes our great therapist in the sky. And we come to God's word every morning with our problems and our stuff and our baggage. And we're looking for God to solve all of our problems our way. And he said last week when we looked at that text, when the disciples said, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? In essence, the Lord said, oh, yes, I do care that you are perishing. And you are perishing more than you know. And he's eventually going to die on the cross so that through faith in him, they would not have to perish. So that we would not have to perish. And because Jesus has died for us and saved us from the worst of all fate, we can trust him in whatever temporary trial we are going through. Do you not care about us, Jesus? Yes, I came to die for you so that I could be with you for all eternity. So you could be with me for all eternity. So my aim this morning is to help you see what the text is saying and what it is not saying. And we have to be very careful with this text because so much abuse has been done to this particular story by those who would see it as a prescription for dealing with demons, as if the demons were the focus of the text. Now, we don't normally see demons or deal with demons, and for many it's fascinating to hear about things 
we don't know much about. And very easily in our man-centeredness, the text can become all about the demons. I assure you, they are playing a minor role. So let's go to the text and make some discoveries today. At the same time, I'll teach you how to come to a text in your daily study and your devotions and your, and your daily reading and not bring your own ideas to the text, but find out what was the author's intent inspired by the Holy Spirit to record this story. So Luke 8.26. Luke 8.26. And remember, this is right after Jesus has performed this miracle on the lake. The disciples probably are still um, reeling from the experience. I mean, talking about an adrenaline rush, you almost drowned out in the middle of this lake. And Jesus stands up and commands the waves and the wind to stop, and they stop. And the last thing we hear them say is, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey his command? They don't know. The answer, you know the answer to that question. They don't know the answer to that question. They get off the boat, and they're in the area of Gennesaret, and there's this man who is possessed by demons, and he lives out in the tombs, and he's naked, and his friends have tried to pin him down and shackle him so he doesn't hurt himself or others, and he has broken through the shackles, and we find out in some of the other synoptics in Mark and in Matthew that he cuts himself with sharp stones. What a sight. What a, what, a, what a scary situation. Right? You and I would be like going out of our way to go around this area. I mean, even if this guy wasn't living in the tombs, I'm not cutting through the tombs. That's scary enough. But we have this crazy demon-possessed naked man with open wounds and festering sores. Yikes. And that's exactly where Jesus wants to be. That's where he's headed. You know, it's almost as if a sovereign God is behind the scenes setting up all these situations for a purpose. I mean, when the disciples took up the offer to follow him, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. As difficult as my weeks can seem, pretty tame compared to hanging out with Jesus for three years. So it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. I think to like save space in the Bible, this is not the way you would start a story. I mean, you just get right to the... So Jesus got off a boat and there was a naked guy with demons and he lives in tombs. And like, you want more backstory. How did this happen? But we, we have to stop and pause and put ourselves in that situation. I'll stop short of asking you to picture it in your mind. That would be a disturbing image. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the pause button at this point and say, okay, what can we say about demons so far based on this opening paragraph? All right, little little teaching here, not preaching. A little teaching. We know 
that demons are real. We know that demons can possess people, at least one person. Doesn't mean just because this man was possessed that anyone could be possessed, but we know that demons possess people. And I'm not talking about other passages in the Bible. I'm just talking about this one right now. And we know that more than one demon can possess a person. I don't know how one gets in there, let alone multiple, but apparently they can. And that's as far as we can say anything at this point. So let's move on. Luke 8, 28. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him. Who's he? Who cried out and fell before him? The, the man, because that's the antecedent to the pronoun. The man. What business do we have with each other, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. Who, who's talking? Is it the demon or the man? Or the demons? Very confusing. If you were there, you would say the man, but the demon apparently is speaking through the man. This is a, a kind of an idiom, a figure of speech. What business do we have with each other? I think other translations may say things like, what do, you, what do I have to do with you? Why are you here? I underline Son of the Most High God because this is pretty shocking. We say the man is speaking, but the man has no idea who Jesus is. The demon knows who this is. And the demon begs Jesus not to torment him. Now think about this. At at this point, the disciples must be wondering why these demons know Jesus by name, why they call him the Son of the Most High God, and why they're trembling before him. Where all others have failed to help this person, Jesus is completely sovereign over the situation. Look at the absolute sovereignty going on in this next section. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. By the way, notice spirit is singular. For it, singular, had seized him many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon, singular, into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he, singular, said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. There's things going on in the spiritual realm that we're being introduced to that are far beyond, apparently, our comprehension. One demon, many demons, a Roman legion. That's a lot of soldiers. I want to say 600. But I want to add another zero and say 6,000. Should, should, have, should have taken better notes. Somebody's going on Google right now. Don't, don't. <laughs> Just because we provide the Wi-Fi doesn't mean you have to use it. It's a lot of demons. Yeah, thank you. It's a lot. And they were all in this one guy. Scary. It's frightening. It, it, it's not fascinating. It's frightening. Don't have this unholy fascination with things evil. Our culture is, is fascinated with darkness and the occult. 
We want to be fascinated with spiritual things. Be fascinated with Jesus. And if he says, stay far away from all things dark and occult, stay away from it. What else can we say? And maybe more importantly, what can we not say about demons? That's just as important, if not a more important question sometimes. So we know this demon had a name, but it was a collective term for many demons. We know the demon or demons spoke through this man and can control the man's movements. And we find out there's a place called the abyss where Jesus can send demons. We can't say that all demons have names. In fact, this is the only passage in the Bible where the actual demon is named. So that is not prescriptive. That's not normative. In fact, it's a strange name because it's one demon speaking on behalf of many. We can't assume that we are supposed to do any of the things Jesus did in this situation. Other places in the Bible, we see Jesus telling demons not to talk. But that doesn't mean that if we invoke the power of Jesus' names, we can tell demons not to talk. So let's, let's move on. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. Pigs. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. The story gets stranger by the moment. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. So picture that. One man chalked full of a legion of demons. And now they're in this huge herd of swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And the question on everybody's mind is, what happened to the demons? Nobody knows. And so the Bible must not think it's important for us to know. It's an interesting question, but don't be consumed with trying to figure out where the demons went. I read many commentaries, and there's many ideas, and they're all speculation. My favorite was Martin Luther, who said they all swam to Rome. <laughs> His way of saying, stop asking questions that the Bible doesn't answer. I believe the point was that Jesus wanted to demonstrate that the demons were many. And since we can't see spiritual realities, and we can only see the evidence of spiritual realities, like Jesus says in John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit's like the wind. You can't see him, but you can see the wind blowing through the trees, Jesus gave these finite human beings a very terrifying picture of just how many demons there were. Try to picture that. A herd of swine suddenly demon-possessed, the squealing and the shrieking and the uh, evil now in front of your eyes. And they all run down to the river and they drown to the lake. So more observations. The demons ask permission from Jesus to enter animals instead of going to the abyss. They, they had to ask permission. 
And apparently going into the swine was far better than going to the abyss. We know more about the abyss if you read uh, Peter and Jude makes mention that there is this place where some of the fallen angels were sent immediately and others have been allowed to roam the earth as it will. But all under the sovereign control of God. The battle between God and Satan isn't like the NCAA championship game coming up. It's, it's, it's not two equal opponents. It's one opponent who knows he's already lost, but is so fallen and so rebellious, can't handle it, and is going to fight until the end. But you can be assured that God wins. He's already won. Another observation. Evidently it is possible for demons to possess animals. But you can't say it's normative. You don't need to go home and be afraid of your dog. Your cat, maybe. (laughs) And I love cats. You can ask my wife. I'm more a cat lover than a dog. I tolerate dogs. I like, I like cats, but sometimes I wouldn't turn my back on a cat. <laughs> they say that if you died in your house, your dog would lay down and die next to you. Your cat would eat you. So, yeah, that sounds about right. The text doesn't tell us what happened to the demons after the swine drowned. It's it's apparently not important. We don't get the impression they were destroyed when the swine... It doesn't say the swine drowned and the demons were destroyed. Finally, the Bible only records Jesus talking with demons and having control uh, over them. This isn't the kind of thing that even his apostles were doing. They, they could cast out demons, but back up and think about what was happening here. He comes on the scene. They're immediately trembling. Don't torment us, son of the most high God. Please let us go into this swine instead of to the abyss. And Jesus, it almost seems casually, gives them permission. All right, I'll, I'll permit it. This is like nothing you've ever seen and nothing you will ever see. That's the point. You're not to read this passage and say, hey, the next time I happen upon a naked man with demons in the, in the tombs, now I know what to do. It's not instructive. The epistles are instructive. A little bit of the Gospels are instructive. Like the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, and look for hidden demons and cast them into swine, and lo, I will be with you. Wait a minute, that's not, that's not there. Sometimes our zeal for the Lord and our desire to see people made well mixed with a little bit of pride. Next thing you know, we fancy ourselves able to do the things Jesus is able to do. But that destroys the entire purpose of the text. We are looking at the only person who can do this. And that ought to cause us to say with the apostles... Who is this man? Who is, he looks like a man. He looks like one of us. 
but the wind and the waves obey his commands, and now demons tremble in his presence. Who is this man? Back to the story. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus. And I think this is the strangest part of the whole story. So I underlined it. Because it doesn't look strange at first glance. Remember, this was a man, crazy, naked, open wounds, chocked full of demons, breaking shackles, living in the tombs. Everyone knew who this guy was. He, he was that guy. They came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked Jesus to stick around and explain all the mysteries of the universe to them. And they fell down and worshipped him as Lord. No. So what Bible is is he reading? Is that the Amplified? (laughs) No. And all the surrounding district asked him to leave them. For they were gripped with fear, and he got into a boat and returned. For the first time in as long as anyone can remember, this poor man was normal again. And this is their response. It was the fear that doesn't lead to repentance. We'll see with the Pharisees that they had the fear that doesn't lead to repentance. They had fear that they were going to lose their position. They were going to lose their fame. They were going to lose their money. They were going to lose their authority. And so he has got to go. And they killed him. But Luke records for us that somebody made the proper response. But anytime you see The word but in your Bible, pay attention. A contrast. Everyone else did this, but the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. For the first time in my life, I am safe. I'm accepted. I want to be with this man wherever he goes. But he, Jesus, sent him away saying, and we get the tone here, it'll be okay now. Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. Now, wait a minute, time out. Remember, we've already come to the realization that Jesus is God. Nobody in this story has. Except the demons. They know. But look at the text again. Who cast out the demons? Jesus. Who did the man seek out? Jesus. Who did the man want to accompany? Jesus. What does Jesus say to the man? Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. Ask 
at the very least, it's an indirect claim to deity. But I think it's a direct claim. And so he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. I think this man gets it. Only God can do what this man just did for me. I think we will meet the man from whom demons had gone out in heaven. Will you get to meet this man? Have you made the connection? We're only in chapter 8. We got a lot of chapters in Luke to go. But the evidence is piling up. I love that the story doesn't even tell us his name because this particular fellow, as fascinating as his story is, is not the point of the story. Maybe when we meet him in heaven, we'll say, oh, are you the one whom the demons had come? That's like his official title now. Like if we get the high my name is tags in heaven. You know, we're going to meet Mary and Mary and the other Mary, right? Oh, you're the other Mary. This is the man from whom the demons had come out. The crazy guy at Gennesaret in the tombs. Yep, that was me. Oh, the stories we're going to get to hear and share. and All reasons to praise the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me just point your attention briefly to a relevant passage regarding demons. Acts 19.13. So now, Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. He's ascended. The Holy Spirit has come. Believers are being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The apostles are doing signs and wonders to authenticate the message of the cross and authenticate their apostolic authority. And there's some Jewish exorcists who went from place to place and they attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. I rebuke you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Come out of them. And somehow in evangelical Christianity, this has become normative practice. Nobody even questions it. How did this happen? Where did this become common practice? We, we don't even really stop to question it. Yeah, I guess if we came across somebody demon-possessed, we would say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ, and the demons would come out. Or we would say, go into the swine over here. Or we would say, what is your name? And this got really popular in the 90s. And the demons suddenly had names like, I'm the demon of lust. I'm the demon of anxiety. I'm the demon of laziness. I'm the demon of fill-in-the-blank with words we used to put biblical names in the blank. And we said, you should repent of those things. But much easier to say it's a demon. Now, I don't know why you'd want to think you have a demon in you. It's horrifying, terrifying, nightmarish. And so these Jewish exorcists, using the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. And I know about Paul. But who are you? I think that about answers this whole practice 
of naming demons and attempting to have authority over them. You continue reading the, pra- the passage, and the seven sons of Sceva get the tar beat out of them, and they run screaming from the house naked, like the man in the tombs. There is no instructions in the New Testament epistles where we get all of our instructions for how to conduct ourselves as Christians and how to conduct ministry in the church. No instructions for looking for hidden demons, naming them, rebuking them in the name of Jesus, telling them to shut up, putting them on a leash. And this God who loves us dearly and gave his life for us, if that were a reality that believers should expect in our life, how mean of God not to tell us what to do about it when it happens. But there's another option. The fact that the Bible is silent on this, but speaks so much about putting off the old man and putting on the new, and prayer, and fasting, and reading your Bible, and sitting under the preaching of God's Word, and evangelizing, and making disciples. All the means of grace God has given us to grow in Christ's likeness. Confessing our sins to one another, and repenting, Forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. These are the, where the Bible puts the focus. Our God does care about us deeply. And he has given us all we need for life and godliness in the pages of Scripture. And no instructions in here for us to be doing any kind of ministry like this. Because that would do violence to the scripture. The whole point of the story is there's this man who did something nobody else has ever done or will ever do. And so we need to ask the question, who is this man? And when we get the right answer, then the next question is, then what do we do with him? That's the question. See, I heard this passage preached a few years ago up at Forest Home Family Camp. My wife was sitting with me, remember? Good preacher, godly man. Know he loves the Lord. Well-intended. Preached this passage. And the big takeaway was, if Jesus can cast a legion of demons out of this guy... Just think of what he can do with your demons. Your baggage. Your stuff. Your crud. Your hang-ups. Your hurts. And Jesus goes from being the almighty son of God to the greatest therapist the world has ever seen. And I know that wasn't his intent, but eloquent speaker, the shift was so subtle, but we went from Jesus casting out an actual legion of demons all of a sudden to your inner demons, your psychological demons, your baggage, your crud, your stuff, your whatever you want to call it. If we want to call it your sinful habits, and I have mine, then we can say Jesus has the power to save you from those sins and help you turn from them and replace those thoughts and those behaviors with righteous thoughts and righteous behavior. But that's a completely different passage and story. Nothing to do with the demon passage. Here's where the demon passage is relevant. 
who can I trust to forgive me of my sins and give me that kind of power to change my heart? The guy who can cast out a thousand demons with one word. That guy. The guy who says to the wind and the waves, be still, and it obeys his commands. The guy who says to the paralytic, get up and walk, and he walks. So let me wrap up some teaching about demons and then drive the real point home. As disconcerting as this is for some people, the Bible never actually says whether or not a true believer can be demon-possessed. Whether or not a true believer can be demon-possessed. But since I just got through telling you that we don't see any examples in the Bible of a true believer being demon-possessed, and we don't see any instructions in the epistles of what to do when a true believer suddenly finds themselves demon-possessed, we can surmise that it's not something we should expect to happen. There are no biblical examples of post-Pentecost believers being possessed. Post-Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in believers. There's only one example in the Old Testament of God's anointed having a demon. Remember King Saul? And God sent that demon to torment him. And then God sent David to play his music and the torment would end temporarily. Sure, there are many demon-possessed people in the Gospels. But then as we get near the end of the book of Acts, not much mention about demon possession. And in the epistles, vague references. Peter, the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Very metaphorical language. In the Gospels, this person, demon-possessed. Don't equate that with Paul saying in Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. Paul's thorn in the flesh was not demon possession. So let me be clear, that is not to say that people can't be demon possessed. We just got through saying, yes, people can be demon possessed. Should you expect yourself as a believer to be demon-possessed one day. No. Put on the full armor of God. Well, if I forget to put the full armor this morning, could a demon... No. It's not the way it works. I believe that the fact that there are many demon-possessed people in the Gospels tells me that when... God the Son took on human flesh and started his ministry. All the forces of evil converged to stop him from doing his work of redemption. And yet, unwittingly, God the Father was using that to magnify and glorify his Son. They threw everything they had at him. And Jesus won every battle. Even on the cross, he was winning when they thought he was losing. And so we have these beautiful promises in the scriptures for believers. He that is in you is more powerful than he that is in the world. If God is for us, we sang this, who can be against us? What else can we surmise from the Bible regarding demon possession? Jesus gave the apostles some authority over demons. I, I believe to authenticate their apostolic authority, to authenticate the message of the gospel, to authenticate their authority to write Holy Scripture. 
Secondly, there's no biblical indication that true believers should expect to be demon-possessed or to practice any kind of demon deliverance ministry. Which, honestly, for the most part, the fad seems to have faded away in evangelicalism. But, you know, these fads, they, they, they resurface from time to time. Thirdly, the Bible instructs believers to practice confession of sin and repentance. There are no instructions to look for hidden demons that might be hindering a true believer in his or her sanctification. You say, well, what about unbelievers? Preach the gospel. They receive Jesus. There's not room in there for Jesus and demons. Do we have instructions to preach the gospel? Well, let me see. What is that passage? What do you mean, what is that passage? There's like 152 of them. There's plenty of instructions about preaching the gospel, evangelizing, making disciples. So that's what we need to busy ourselves doing. And trust Jesus to deal with the demons. All right? You don't need to be afraid. Yes, they're terrifying, but your Savior, they tremble in His presence. And if you are a true believer, Christ is in you. So what's the main point of the story? Well, look, look at the pattern. Now, what's been going on in Luke? Luke 5.24. Remember when he healed the paralytic? But first he said, your sins are forgiven. And <gasps> who is this man who forgives sins? And he says, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no proof. If you say get up and walk and the guy can't get up and walk, then you're a charlatan. So he says, so that you know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walk. And his sins are forgiven. Remember the dinner party? The prostitute washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears? They said, well, if this guy was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was. And Jesus, in essence, says, oh, I know what kind of woman she is. And I say to her, because of her faith, your sins are forgiven. And again, they say in their hearts, who is this man who even forgives sins? This is the theme. Who is this man? Who is this man? And then on the lake. Do you not care that we're perishing? Yes, more than you know. But so that you know, I can save you from eternal perishing. Be calm, waves and wind. And they said, who is this man that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? You see the theme. And even though it's not specifically written in this story, by now it doesn't need to be written. Luke assumes you can fill in the blanks. Who is this man who comes upon the scene where a crazy, demon-possessed, naked, bleeding man living in the tombs takes one look at Jesus and he's trembling and calls him the Son of the Most High God and begs him, don't send us to the abyss. Who is this man? That's the point of the story, not... I can take notes on how to do demon deliverance. You just missed the whole point. Who is this man? Nobody else can do this. The only explanation is that this man was there in the heavenly places when these spirit beings were created and he was there when they fell. And this man 
sent them out of heaven, some straight to the abyss and some down to the earth for a time. Are you trying to tell me that Jesus is God? No, the Bible is telling you Jesus is God. And everything that's happening is telling us Jesus is God. He is Lord. So the application isn't how do I do demon deliverance? Here's the application. And it comes by way of Jesus' half-brother, James. James writes, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying, okay, to those of you who believe Jesus is God, why don't you act like it? You believe that there is one God, you do well. But even the demons believe that, and they tremble. Where's the trembling? Where's the fear of the Lord? Where's the humility? Where's the obedience? Where's the reorganizing, reprioritizing your entire life to follow Jesus and make his name great amongst the nations? That's the application. But it starts with receiving Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is Lord. You don't have to be chock full of demons and have them cast out of you to respond in the way the man who had demons cast out of him responded. When you realize how utterly sinful and rebellious we are and you hear that this man, Jesus, can forgive sins because he is God, you will indeed respond the way this man responded. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, I want you to accompany me everywhere I go. I want to follow you. This is the only place I am safe. This is the only place I am whole. Father, may that be the heart cry of every person in this room. That we would receive Jesus as Lord and stop just being fascinated with the stories about Him, but be in awe in Him as our God and our Savior. And like the man in the story, Jesus is telling us, now go and tell everyone what God has done for you. In his name we pray. Amen.